0: As for us adults over here, we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. And if you have a church Bible, that's page 1004. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior." In the one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable for the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up not not man. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent, which is so much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their hands, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away.
1: And Adam begat Seth and Seth begat Enosh and Enosh begat Canaan. Sorry, my bookmark's still in page 4, back where Anthony was doing uh, the Life and Doctrine segment before. You guys are up to page 1004, Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, as we continue. And imagine if I was going to preach on those genealogies in Genesis 5 that Anthony mentioned. Because let's be honest, names aside, uh, I think it's safe to say that we are way out of touch with that whole idea of genealogies that seems so important in the Bible. Our, you know, our mild, let's be honest, our mild interest today in our family trees, even if we go full on, like Ancestry.com, our our mild interest in this stuff just doesn't even come close to what ancestral lineage meant in the ancient world. Uh, For them, this established who people were. A person's identity was bound up with their heritage. And in Israel, well, genealogy decided things like, the ownership of land you know, where people lived and uh, the rights to different offices in that nation so for example laid out in scripture is the stipulation that the priests who served in the temple in israel were to be taken from the tribe of levi Our scripture here in hebrews just said that that's why they're called levitical priests and indeed uh, why back there early on we have a book called leviticus it's about that priesthood and the, and, the, and the ceremonies they carried out and so on and so forth. Uh, so too, and, and on the other hand, uh, the scriptures uh, in the middle there pros- prophesied that the, that the saviour when he came, uh, the Christ, would be from the tribe of Judah. So genealogies are important in scripture and actually we can learn a lot from them. Uh, for one thing, they help us lock things into time and place. Uh, For example, they show us where where Jesus and how Jesus fits into everything historically. We we have his genealogy all the way back, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. Genealogies are also important uh, because they demonstrate to us how faithful God is to his covenant promises to us. Uh, Despite the unfaithfulness, that is, of all the humans in the story, no matter what genealogy they fit into, they were unfaithful. Nevertheless, God never wavers from his covenant promises to us. Uh, Genealogy show us that. Exactly as he promised, uh, for example, he did send the Christ into the world and through the tribe of Judah just as he had said. So genealogy uh, reveals Jesus to us in real historical time and space and and how he arrived just as God had always promised. It affirms Jesus' place in all this in an earthly sense. He he is, in fact, eligible for the kingship of Israel, one of the themes we've been thinking through, kingship. He's eligible uh, for that in regards to his ancestral lineage in Israel. He's born of the tribe of Judah. But in another sense, he was only supposed to be the son of Joseph, wasn't he? We know that too from Christmas, don't we? He he was also, as we know, the son of God uh, who took on human form in that way at that time. Light from light, uh, true God from true God. And in that sense, he has no biological parents No ancestry, no genealogy whatsoever to speak of, not even an origin, no beginning of days. In his human nature, yes, sure, the son of Mary of Bethlehem, born in Judah. But in that eternal nature that he's always had, being divine, well, well, Jesus actually brings to this Bible story help from outside. Help from outside. And, And so as we do then... Uh, turn and open up again to to Hebrews and page 1004 chapter 7 and 8 today those two threads about Jesus and his genealogy uh, are actually quite helpful to keep in the back of your mind as we read through these things the correct earthly genealogy on the one hand through David uh, according to the centuries old script of how it would be and, and, and no genealogy on the other hand because of his divine nature Those two threads will help us understand what these chapters tell us about how Jesus uh, can be understood as a king and a high priest. Two things this letter has been pressing and and really starts to get into the mechanism of uh, in these two chapters. You see, the law of Moses uh, established the priesthood of Israel uh, under the line of Levi. So kings of Israel didn't double up as priests because all other considerations aside about those guys Israel's kings were not from the tribe of Levi so the kingship and the priesthood were two separate offices in Israel in the Old Testament there's examples of of kings getting that wrong so King Uzziah for example uh, thinking he could double up as a priest, went into the temple to burn incest, some, uh, incense, something that only for the priests to do, and his face broke out immediately in leprosy. Uh, so all of which makes us wonder, well, how is it then that Jesus can be, as this letter keeps insisting, how can he be king and priest? Uh, he is the king, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and so too he's our priest, there's no doubt about it. Hebrews pressing both claims to us. Are chapter one. Chapter one took and applied a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures about the eternal king to Jesus. Uh, but then chapter two straight away opened up this running theme about him being our great high priest. But for Jesus to be both the king and priest would seem to be impossible from what the Bible itself lays down about these things in Israel chapters 7 and 8 of Hebrews resolve that dilemma in two ways Uh, one uh, Jesus comes from outside the Levitical system altogether because of his divine nature and two Jesus mediates a different covenant than uh, what those Levitical priests mediated Jesus is beyond the Levitical priesthood and he applies a better promise to us. And the explanation of all that in chapter 7 verse 1 picks up from, from previous weeks where we've been of that one mysterious example of, of another king and priest from the Old Testament, Melchizedek. Uh, look back at, uh, in chapter 7, look back in time with me and um, with the writer here. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Mysterious Melchizedek is both king and priest. He is priest of God Most High, verse 1, and he is king of Salem or king of peace, that is, and by translation of his actual name, he is king of righteousness, verse 2. Without getting distracted about speculations as to to who Melchizedek was, this mysterious character, let's instead look to the point that the author is actually making here uh, at this part of the letter. Melchizedek demonstrates something beyond Israel, beyond Israel. He can be both king and priest because he stands outside Israel altogether. In fact, he predates Israel. He predates the ceremonial law given to Moses that established their Levitical priesthood. The writer says that metaphorically here in verse 10 when he says that uh, Levi, uh, Levi, the great-grandson of Abraham, going way, 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 way back, Levi, the grandson of great-grandson of Abraham, from whom all those priests in Israel eventually later came, Levi himself was still in Abraham's loins when this priest-king Melchizedek guy came visiting. That story uh, is in Genesis 14. Uh, We read it a few weeks ago. It took place before Abraham was even promised a son in Genesis 15, before Abraham was even called Abraham, In Genesis 16, it was maybe a 100 years or so before his great-grandson Levi was eventually born. And it was 500 or so years before the law was then given to Moses to establish the Levitical priesthood of this new nation that had formed Israel from among the descendants of Levi. And, of course, the kingship of Israel was another 500 or so years even later than that. So point one about Melchizedek here is that he demonstrates the concepts of priesthood and kingship from well beyond the the limited frame of reference of the Israelite nation. And secondly, uh, notice that he sits above Abraham in that encounter in Genesis 14. He is the superior one in that exchange. And Maybe you know from the Gospels, uh, Israel's claim to fame as being children of Abraham. Uh, and if so, then you'll get a sense of how important this second point is here. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, verse 7, not vice versa. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, verses 8 to 10, not vice versa both of which emphasise that Melchizedek is the greater party in all of this. That's what this scripture here is saying. The abbreviated version of that is in verse 4, I think. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of all the spoils. And yet as per point 1, Melchizedek is not even from the nation of Israel. He's not even from the line of Abraham, their forefather. He's of entirely unknown origin and in fact, verse 3, of no origin without beginning of days. He's like the Son of God in that respect. And the other tribes of Israel paid tithes to the tribe of Levi for their priestly work that they carry out on their behalf. But the, the whole nation, including the tribe of Levi, paid tithes to this outsider priest-king Melchizedek through Abraham says verse 9 so Melchizedek's beyond Israel Melchizedek is greater than Israel it's way back as I say it's on about page 10 of these Bibles it's just the Bible story is only just starting to unfold and Melchizedek appears and, and shows us a picture of blessing from outside blessing from outside the implication of all that is pretty clear help is needed from outside help is needed from outside the levitical priesthood in israel was was not able to achieve god's promises verse 11 goes on to say now if perfection had been attainable through the levitical priesthood what further need would there have been for another priest to arise that is jesus After the order of Melchizedek, rather than after the order of Aaron. Aaron, if you recall from a few weeks ago, Aaron was the first Levitical high priest in the nation of Israel. So he represents that order. The argument here is that if the scripture foretold that the coming saviour would be a priest from the order of Melchizedek, then it implicitly told us all along that the order of Aaron, that the Levitical priesthood in Israel was insufficient to achieve all of God's plan. Help was needed from outside the system. And that has huge implications for Judaism based as it is on the Levitical priesthood established by that ceremonial law given to Moses. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Do you see how big this is? Do you see what this means? The Levitical priesthood in Israel the Jewish temple, the whole Jewish religious ceremony was only for a time. It has been superseded by this help from outside in Jesus verses 13 to 19 then use that example of Melchizedek to take this further help us understand how Jesus can be both the king and this high priest as we said before was because Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi he's from Judah he has to be from Judah because it was always promised in scripture that God's king would come via the tribe of Judah and yet Jesus is a priest, and he can be a priest too, because he's not a Levitical priest. Again, that's precisely what was promised of him too in his priestly role. A thousand years earlier in Psalm 110, that's the scripture that was coming up last week. It's here again today, verse 17, verse 21. That's Psalm 110. Jesus is a different kind of priest. The scriptures always said he would be. A different kind of priest who sits above and beyond Israel itself. Because a Levitical priest, verses 18 and 19, and the ceremonial law through Moses that organises those priests and sets out their duties in which they mediate on behalf of the people, that that did not bring God's salvation. Only this new priest, Jesus, does. In verse 18 there. For on the one hand a former commandment is set aside, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. Wow. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That is massive if you 're a first century Christian uh, reading this letter, uh, and maybe you 've been thinking about reverting back to Judaism under some kind of cultural or social or religious pressure then then that there is massive that ceremonial law of Moses and the priests who mediate it cannot bring perfection all of it was was necessarily based in human weakness and, and and the inherent insufficiency that that brings help is needed from outside and as we see then uh, Jesus' priesthood does bring perfection because he is help from outside and now it's not just the priest uh, but we too the people who can draw near to god Because of Jesus, whose whose priesthood on our behalf, like his kingship over us, is is ongoing and and unchanging. It has been sworn in by God's oath, as we saw at the end of chapter 6 last week. It's still rolling here in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 7 today. This has been declared by God's oath. This is just how it is. And Jesus can do what the Levitical priests couldn't do. That's what chapter 7 goes on to explain. Maybe we just peek at a couple more verses there in chapter 7. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That just ratcheted all this up even further. Not just has the law changed around all this, but even the covenant has changed. You remember covenant, right? We did a series in covenant last year. We we spoke about it a few weeks ago in our life and doctrine segment. We talk about it every week actually in different ways. God's covenant promise that he gives to bring us into relationship with him. The law fits into that covenant promise from God as a way of culturing cultivating that relationship within his promises well now the covenant itself the promise of God itself for our salvation has changed that's the theme that chapter 8 goes on with we are living now under a whole new promise of God in Jesus Christ this is the new covenant in my blood he said if covenant has changed then then yes, the ceremonial law around that has changed too and the priesthood that ministers it has changed. So verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since He always lives to make intercession for them, uh, better much this new covenant, yes, yes, you bet what what wasn't attainable in fact through the Levitical priests and the old covenant that they ministered is realized through Jesus and the new covenant that he ushered in, Jesus is able to save and to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Turning away from from that hope in Jesus back to to Judaism and its priests and its ceremonies, which which seems to be what this is about, I think, given that the length of this comparison that's running through Hebrews is going to, going back would, would be to throw away certain salvation for something that cannot ever bring salvation. It would be madness, wouldn't it? But it's not important, I don't think, just for those first century Christians uh, to take hold of these things, wrestling as they would have been. They would have been wrestling, wouldn't they, at the interchange of the old and the new. Uh, It's also important for us to take hold of sitting here today. I mean, you and I might not have thought about switching to Judaism. Some of you might have probably in strange little fleeting moments, we've all thought about such things, but but more so, I think this warning is every bit as urgent for us because there's a principle underneath this that is that is universal to, to all of those kinds of thoughts that we sometimes have about other hopes. It is only Jesus who can save because only He is help from outside. Nobody and and nothing else can save. We're not talking here about being saved from from cultural rejection or something, but we're saved from struggles or hardship or trivial things in this life or any of those things. We're talking about being saved from our sin. The great promise from from, from back where Anthony was before on page 3 of the Bible, uh, the great promise that we'd be brought out from under God's judgment for our sin and, and into his arms. Here in Hebrews, in this beautiful verse 25 of of chapter 7, see how perfectly sufficient Jesus is to do that. He can save and he will save to the uttermost, which means nothing else is even needed. Jesus is able to save fully, completely, perfectly, forever those who draw near to God through him. And since he always lives to make intercession for them at the throne of God, he will. So entrust yourself to him completely, exclusively, the sacrifice that he made when he when he offered up himself at the sin uh, for, at the cross for our sin that's the perfect and and final priestly offering on our behalf. Don't be distracted by other ideas. don't be uh, enticed by easier or, or more appealing perhaps uh, religions as they might sound don't Don't look to ceremony and such things for your salvation. Don't look to to priests and pastors or such for your salvation, nor even to institutions. No, not even to the church should you look for your salvation. Only Jesus can save you from your sin. So you must draw near to God through him. Summarising all of that then, chapter 8 brings us home today by by. Just making sure we haven't lost track of the king side of all this. Chapter 8 verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There's the king side in all of this from back in chapter 1 seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven is our high priest, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. You might recall from a few weeks back, we were looking at chapters 4 and 5 and thinking through the Levitical system and mentioned that the Day of Atonement, we're, we're, We're only the high priest... And only to offer a sacrifice of atonement, and only one day per year could he enter the most holy, most inner place of the temp- temple or tabernacle. That, that's what tent is referring to here in verse 2 of chapter 8. Tent. Uh, tabernacle, or, or later the temp- uh, temple that, that, that Solomon built to replace that portable tabernacle. The, the word behind it all is t- tent. Tent is a dwelling place. But the different versions of that holy infrastructure in, in Israel were, were just a picture, it's just a little, like a little conceptual model of, of the true dwelling place of God, the place where God is seated on his throne. And Chapter 8 is telling us that, that Jesus has, has not gone into the, into the innermost place of the model. He's gone into the actual innermost place the most holy place, and and not just that, but but having gone to the very throne of God on our behalf, he is seated there at the right hand of the throne, verse 1, because he is the king and it is his to reign over all things now. The Levitical high priest uh, went into the conceptual model One day per year. And in great fear and trembling, he offered a sacrifice for his sins and then for all the nation's sins. And then he had to get back out of there again or he would be smoked. So holy is the presence of God. But Jesus has gone not to the model, but right to the very throne of the living almighty God. And he stayed there. And he is seated there at God's right hand because he is king this is our high priest who can question Jesus on these things he's the one who created all things if you remember chapter one this no genealogy Jesus is God the son of whom the Father says, if you remember chapter 1, the Father says to the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is one with God the Father. He has the right to be seated on that throne to reign over all things. He's a king, yes, a king who came. The sacrifice that he came to give and offer for our sin has made atonement for our sin. It was also back in chapter 1 actually, chapter 1 verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Past tense in terms of his sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice for our sins is finished. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a forever king and as a forever and perfect high priest. His intercession for our sin there, on the basis of that once for all time sacrifice he made, his intercession for us now as our high priest is unending and complete. There's nothing missing anymore. The Jewish temple, uh, the earthly priests, uh, the offerings that those priests presented, they they were all just copies, just little shadows, uh, 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 patterns, it says, uh, of the true and and heavenly thing that was to come. Chapter 8 and verse 5, they're just shadows. It's like little models of it. And the true heavenly thing has now come. I reckon these two chapters, by the way, probably, I reckon, the closest people could try to get to to argue for for a case that the Bible's kind of like, you know, plan A, Old Testament, and plan B, New Testament. You know, God's plan through Israel failed, so he started over with the church. A lot of people think that way. But these two chapters actually reject that idea entirely They reject that idea because while Jesus' covenant is certainly new, his covenant's new, that's chapters 7, verse 22 and 8, 13, makes that very clear. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That much is true. Nevertheless, we can't actually say that the old covenant, on its own, constituted a complete plan for salvation that's the whole point of these chapters think about it when it says they were copies and shadows of the heavenly thing that was coming clearly as in chapter 7 and verse 11 if you have your scripture there and and chapter 7 verse 18 the old covenant was imperfect could never attain perfection that covenant and the, and the priests who ministered that covenant, chapter 8 and verse 5, served just the shadow, the copy, the pattern of the true things to come. God's plans do not fail. There is no plan B in terms of our salvation. The new covenant fulfills all the covenant promises God had made. Because all of them find their yes and amen in Jesus. So don't look back to, 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 to things that are just shadows, things that are just copies, things that were just there to point us to the real thing the whole old covenant has now been fulfilled is what chapter 8 goes on to explain it would be madness wouldn't it sheer madness to to exchange the fulfilled salvation in jesus for, for the for the pencil sketch that just kind of hashed out the idea and, and showed us what to expect as i say in our case the applications probably not so much don't look back to to judaism because it's probably not where we've come from but. Maybe the application for us is don't look sideways at at any other hope or don't look inwards. That's what's our cultural pressure look like. Well, well, two two social narratives, I think, that chatter away in our ears all the time. In one ear is this constant message, you need this, now you need this. And it's, you know it could be anything, whatever ceremony or ritual or, or trinket or short course maybe or a book or a treat some spiritual person, some institution maybe is trying to sell. The other ear has got this one going all the time. You can do this. You've got this. You can do anything if you just set your mind to it. Sorry, but... But neither of them can help when it comes to this. The promise for the salvation from our sin that we all truly need is is only achievable and only achieved by Jesus. That is how God has always ordained that this would be and he has ordained it forever. Those social narratives sound like they're coming from very different directions, but the net effect is actually very, 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 very much the same. They, they both eventually focus all of my thoughts and my hopes of salvation on me. And it's a funny thing, but when doubt comes my way over my salvation, as it does, and, and when I'm tempted to despair over my sin and so forth, as I am, It's because something has come along and made me focus again on me. Dwelling on my unworthiness, uh, I'm I'm thinking and dwelling on my failings uh, to get things right and my inability to kind of... Very subtly, my hope of salvation shifts to me and to my efforts. Have I made good on my sin, I wonder? Or am I doing enough good things? Or can someone please show me how? Can anyone out there give me something to fix this? This passage here is a great clarifier for us, a great corrective for us, that we must only look upward for our salvation. Not inward, not outwards even to the people and the rituals around us. We have to look upward. We need help from above, from him who has no genealogy. Salvation hinges entirely on Jesus Christ, this this king and high priest as he is, the one who, who made atonement for our sin and is now seated at the throne and consequently who is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. If you haven't yet come to Jesus like so, then then catch that clarification and warning in this scripture. You cannot draw near to God but through Jesus because only he can intercede for your sin. Don't put your hope in in some ritual that you've done or, or maybe should do. Hear what the scriptures say. Repent for the forgiveness of your sin in Jesus' name. And he will save you to the uttermost and forever. And If you have drawn near to God through Jesus like so, then then take these chapters, take this scripture and put them away very carefully in your heart so you remember where they are for later because, because doubt will come your way. You can be sure of that when you're tempted to despair, when you're convicted of the the guilt, the unworthiness within you, look instead to your king. Look instead to your high priest. He is seated at the throne and he forever lives to intercede for you there. And in all of that, know that you can be assured of all of this truth by God's own oath. He has sworn and he will not change his mind Jesus is our high priest forever. This is God's chosen means of salvation to you and to me and to everyone who will repent and believe. This Jesus of of no genealogy, this king, this high priest and and this sacrifice that he brought of, of him crucified for our sin, that is God's perfect plan to deal with our sin And God's plans do not fail. Jesus' earthly genealogy reminds us of that, how faithful God is to his plan for our salvation. He did not and will not change that plan because this is the covenant in his very blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scripture and a lot we've taken off uh, to try to uh, work our way through today in these chapters. We pray that you would uh, have them registered deeply in our heart. Thank you that you have fulfilled all your promises in your word to us in Jesus and yet with so much more glory certain to come. Thank you, Father, that in Jesus our sin has been atoned for and we can enter into this relationship with you now, that we've been purified through what he did for us. And, Father, we pray that uh, you'd convict us uh, to come into that covenant fully if we have not yet, if we've been hearing it and thinking about it and understanding it but not yet have repented and stepped into it. I pray for your conviction among us, Lord. And for those who have stepped into it, Father, I pray you please reassure us through this scripture of the of the sheer foreverness of this covenant promise. And fix our hearts and our minds forever on this priest and king that we now have in Jesus. And don't let us be distracted or deceived into any false hope along the way. Amen as we uh, celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper today.